but we will be in Acts chapter 15. So as you guys make your way that direction, let me just remind you, since we've been a couple weeks since we've been in the book of Acts, where we were previously. In chapters uh, 13 and 14, we went through the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and of Barnabas. And as they uh, traveled out, leaving from the church in Antioch, the original Gentile church, they send Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. And the place they begin is on the island of Cyprus, which is an island located there in the Mediterranean. And they uh, start their missionary journey there. And from there, they leave and go up into uh, modern-day Turkey, which was in ancient times known as Asia Minor. And they head from uh, Cyprus up into Asia Minor, and they visit towns like Pamphylia and and Iconium, and then eventually end up in Derbe, the final location that they were at uh, last time we were in Acts. And from there, after they had gone all the way through Asia Minor, this northern region, they then double back and go back through these cities that they had just visited, reinforcing the message that they had given, encouraging the early churches along their way. And finally, at the end of chapter 14, they make their way back to the church in Antioch again, where they are refreshed and restored and recovering from a year-long missionary journey. And so that's where we're going to pick up today is they've arrived back in Antioch. And as they arrive there, uh, believers are going to come, specifically teachers, from Jerusalem to visit the church in Antioch. And as they arrive, what we're going to find is this predominantly Gentile church is going to be met with teachers from Jerusalem, and the teaching is going to get a little messy. They're going to have uh, some disagreements, some misunderstandings, and, and as they uh, tend to drift away from straight Bible teaching, which is why I wanted to mention in the introduction, it is always good to know and understand what James mentions in James chapter 3, verse 1. I'll go there to read it for you. So you know that I was encouraged this week in my studies. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a strength. So that's encouraging when you start off your Bible study in the week and the Lord says, hey, let not many of you become teachers for you're going to be uh, more strictly judged. But what I really took to heart as I was thinking about that this week is um, it, it reinforces to me as a Bible teacher to stay to the text. Keep the teaching to the text. Don't vary far from it because as we do, what enters in is our own opinion, our own thoughts. And as our own opinions and thoughts and preconceived notions uh, enter into things, what takes place is confusion. Confusion happens, and then quickly we can be left off track. And that's very much what's going to happen here for the early church. These Jews are going to come in, these, these now Jewish believers. These are Messianic Jews. They love the Lord, but they had their own preconceived notions. They had their own history with Judaism that was built into the teaching. And the next thing you know is confusion is going to take place in this early church. So chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so men of Judea come into Antioch, precisely what we were talking about a minute ago, and they were teaching the brethren. No doubt these guys were all-star teachers that are coming from Jerusalem, one of which was the Apostle Peter. So Peter comes into Antioch along with these other teachers to teach, but this uh, teaching happens, this uh, doctrinal idea that you must also be circumcised according to the law of Moses if you're going to be a Christian. 
If you're going to believe in Jesus, you have to add this additional piece. And so you're going to be so glad you came this morning because I'm going to exercise some mathematics for you, right? So a little bit of Bible math looks like this. Um, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. That at the point in time when we begin to try to add things to our salvation, to the Lord, what we essentially do is we negate the perfect work that he did on the cross. Jesus' final words uh, there on the cross, I shared it with you a few weeks ago, it was the word to telestai. And what it means is uh, it is finished. The work is completed. And yet when we begin to layer on works that must be done in order for salvation to take place, what we're essentially saying is his work wasn't complete. You're going to have to add your own works into uh, his work in order to have salvation. And it's just not biblical. That we are saved by grace, unmerited favor, receiving that which we do not deserve. That's what grace ultimately is. It's getting what we do not deserve. That's heaven. What we ultimately deserve is hell and damnation. Instead, we receive heaven and eternity. But we receive that through faith. Simple belief in Him as our Savior. And so they begin to try to add things into salvation. That's what's taking place in verse 2. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so what we see in verse 2 is there was no small dissension. In in other words, they had a big old tussle, a brouhaha. They were having a major argument amongst themselves there in Antioch. And so the decision was made, you're going to have to head back to Jerusalem. Now you can imagine, if you're the Apostle Paul, how excited you are about going back to Jerusalem. Because here's Paul, who was, by his own words, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was one of the top in all of Judaism but then he, by the Lord's calling, left the faith. He was not very popular with the Jews in Jerusalem. Not only that, in his previous life, he was a persecutor of the church. He had drugged people out of their homes, thrown them in jail, and even had them killed. He wasn't very popular with the church in Jerusalem either. And so you can imagine Paul's feeling in his stomach. It had to have sunk as they said, you know what, we're going to have to go back to Jerusalem to settle this. And so in verse 3, so being sent on their way, By the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. I love this, that here's legalism being pressed into the church. These men that wanted to put their rules and add things to the salvation of Jesus, and what did it cause? Disputes, disagreements, arguments. But the perfect gospel of Jesus Christ, what does it bring about? Great joy. (laughs) These men were able to leave and go in great joy, sharing the gospel message with people uh, along their way. And why should they not? Because here's ultimately what the gospel message is. Your sins are forgiven. All those things that you can't possibly ever pay, the, the debts that you cannot pay, Jesus said it's paid in full. What a wonderful message that they could share with all the Gentiles as they made their way back to Jerusalem. And so they left on their way with great joy. Now then, verse 4, And when they had come to Jerusalem, uh, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. 
But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And so now we see the Pharisees striking a back at it, messing things up, so it seems. I want to point out, though, that if you think back to the ministry of Jesus, who was he consistently the hardest on? It was the Pharisees, right? You brood of vipers, he would call them. He would criticize them openly and publicly, these Pharisees. And yet notice with me, in verses 4 and 5, many of them believed in Jesus. I believe in large part he was hardest on those that would eventually believe in him. What the Pharisees believed in, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in the miraculous. They just didn't believe Jesus was the guy. Until post-resurrection, the stories, the miracles, all the things that were taking place, these guys had actually come to faith in Christ. They had left Judaism. They'd been bold. But they could not get out of their minds this legalistic idea that there must be something we can do for salvation. And so these men, they believed in him, but they wanted to add things to the text. They wanted to add to what was required for salvation. And when you go to Luke 18, 18, as they're questioning Jesus there, look at the question that they ask. This teacher comes to Jesus, and what does he say? What must I do? do to be saved there must be something for me to do that's really at the heart of legalism it's there must be some kind of value i must do in order to earn my salvation we all like to earn our keep right that's precisely what these guys had in their minds there's some great thing that must be done in order to have salvation now then verse six now the apostles and the elders came together to consider the matter and when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and he said to them. And so as they're having this dispute, these arguments are taking place. Who is the top apostle, right? It's the apostle Peter. I mean, he's the guy. He was with Jesus. He was there with them in the Garden of Gethsemane. He saw him transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration. If anyone is going to get up and speak to this matter, it's going to be the apostle Peter who also, if you might recall, uh, was there in Antioch. Now, I'm going to go with you to Galatians chapter 2 as Paul actually addresses this as he writes to the Galatians. And the Galatia, when he writes to the Galatians, this is actually a region, not just a specific church, but a region, an area of churches. And interestingly enough, this is the area of churches that they uh, went to during their first missionary journey. Now, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I, this is Paul writing, withstood him to his face, because he blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So what Paul's saying is, when Peter was first in Antioch, he was eating with everybody. He was everybody's buddy, the Apostle Peter. All the great stories he had to tell, throwing his head back and laughing, hanging out with Jews and with Gentiles, until James sent people from Jerusalem. Great teachers, these of the circumcision. And when this happened, uh, Peter stopped hanging out with Gentiles. He would no longer eat with them. Instead, he separated himself 
from them and would only eat with the Jews. So this is the scene that's at hand. And what Paul says is that I withstood him right to his face in saying this in verse 14. But I went, when I saw it, that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in a manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? He got right up in Peter's face and said, you know what, when you were hanging out with the Gentiles, you lived just like they did. And now all your Jewish buddies show up and you want to be a Jew. You know what you're being? Hypocrite, Peter. And he calls him out right to his face. Now, you can imagine, back to our text at hand in chapter 15, knowing this interaction took place between the apostle Peter and Paul, uh, how Paul must have felt when Peter gets up to speak. Oh boy, this is going to be a mess. Continuing there in verse 7, let's see how he responded. Uh, But before we do, uh, what I wanted to mention to you guys uh, was this. Um, Here's Peter. 15 years into his career, 20 years of following Jesus, somewhere in that range, and he completely blows it in Antioch. He completely blows it as a hypocrite. He followed the Lord. He loved Jesus. I mean, he was a part of this great movement of the Gentiles, and yet here he is, and he still blows it this late in his career. And I'm actually encouraged by that, by the way. I'm encouraged when I think about how often I have in my own mind, I should be further along in my Christian walk, and yet I blow it, or I stub my toe, or I stumble on something. I'm encouraged by Peter. Uh, Years ago, uh, in 2017, I got the opportunity to go to uh, Israel. And while I was over there, uh, we had several Bible teachers. We've gone from, uh, with other churches from California. And one of the teachers of a large church, a Calvary Chapel Santee, his name was Gary Lawton. And Gary had this big, deep, booming voice. I mean, a voice I wish I could have. He sounded like a radio announcer. And and he was, you know, in his early 60s, and he'd been following the Lord for like 40 years. And just listening to him talk and share about the Bible, I was so encouraged. But we were gathered there in the praetorium, which is uh, the area that Jesus was held uh, on trial. He was actually imprisoned and, and beaten by the Roman soldiers in this area right off the Temple Mount. And as Gary was sharing this very... A moving time thinking about the Lord being beaten on our behalf he stopped and I remember he just paused and he said you know sometimes sometimes I think I should be way further along than what I am right now just with tears in his eyes and I thought my goodness this is the most holy man I've ever been around he he's loved the Lord for longer than I've been alive and yet here he is thinking boy, I think I should be further along than this by now. And I was encouraged by that because it told me that, that I'm not going to ever arrive and that daily I'm going to have challenges and battles and things that I'm going to have to improve upon in my walk and in my life. And this is the spot that Peter's in. Looking back at this time, he completely blew it. And yet he did not back down. from Here in verse 7, we're going to see how he addresses it. Men and brethren... You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And so what Peter 
tells them, reminds them of, is of the events of Acts chapter 10. This was that time a few weeks back we went through it where he was called by the Lord to go to the Gentiles himself personally. And what he saw in a vision was a sail or a sheet coming down from heaven and all of these unclean animals on it. And the Lord told him, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter said in the vision, he responded to the Lord, not so, Lord. I'm not going to rise and kill and eat an unclean animal. I'm a good Jewish boy. No unclean thing has ever been in my mouth. It's never passed through my lips. And so he, he told the Lord, not so, I'm not going to rise. But the Lord told him over and over again, and then eventually the sheet lifted up into heaven and went away. And Peter began to understand what the Lord was saying when he responded and said, Peter, don't call anything common or unclean that I have cleansed. That he was speaking about the Gentiles. The very word koinos was that in Greek for unclean or common. It was the same word that they would use when they would refer to the Gentiles. And so Peter began to understand what the Lord was telling him to do. He goes to the house of Cornelius, being obedient, and as he's preaching and speaking to this Gentile group of people, what happens is the Holy Spirit descends down upon them. The Holy Spirit was given to them the same way he came upon the Jews of the early church. And so this is what Peter's referring to in verse 8. In verse 9, And he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Notice that. He, he, the Holy Spirit, purified their hearts by faith. It wasn't that their hearts were purified before faith. Their hearts were purified in their faith. And I think that's important for us to understand and acknowledge because time and time again, people will not come to church because they think they've got to get it all together. Boy, if I could just get my heart cleaned up, if I could get my act together, better not walk in the building. The roof might cave in, right? You've heard that before. Oftentimes, we feel that way, that if we don't get it together, we can't enter into the presence of the Lord. And what the Lord's saying is, come to me and I'll help you get it together. That I'm not all about reformation and reforming you. Transformation. It's an outside-in process uh, inside-out process, excuse me, not an outside-in process. Now, verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you test God, putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? He's speaking now about the law of Moses. And what he's saying is, you want to put this yoke, you want to put this burden upon them, but guess what? Uh, we couldn't withstand it, nor could our fathers. If they had decided to obey, listen to all of the Old Testament law, do you know what they would have to do? They would have to fulfill 613 commandments that are in our Old Testament. Can you imagine that? 613 commandments. We can't even keep the top 10 list. I mean, that list freaks us out a little bit. But if you go through all the Old Testament, there are 613 things that they must do if they wanted to live. And the law is perfect in what it does. It points out our need for a Savior. It points out our need that we cannot do this on our own. What the law says is do this and you'll live. Verse 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus, 
we shall be saved in the same manner as they. What Peter's speaking to is liberty. The liberty we have in Jesus Christ. So where the law says, do this and live, what liberty says is, live this and do. That all those things that we can't possibly do in our own, or by our own strength, through inviting Jesus Christ to live in us, they then become natural. I begin to do these things because I want to. I desire to. No longer do I feel compelled like I must. I do these things because I get to. Now, notice with me the way the words are assembled here, that we shall be saved in the same manner as they. I think that's fascinating. Peter doesn't say they'll be saved the same way we are. He's saying, look, because of this, we can be saved in the same way that they've already been saved. James chapter 2, verse 17. This is sometimes a controversial passage that James shares. But what he, he says here is, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my, by my works. What James is saying is, we don't have a works-based faith. We have faith-based works. It's Christ working in us that actually allows us to do these things, and no longer is it a burden or a yoke applied to us, something that we must do, but we go from a have-to Christianity to a get-to Christianity, and that is way different. That feels like freedom. That feels like the chains literally being dropped off of us where I think I must fulfill all these rules and obligations and check all these boxes. What James is saying and what Peter's saying here in chapter 15 is it's by grace through faith that we're saved. It's an inside-out Christianity. Now verse 12, And then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had heard this, they became silent. And James answered. So they listen to Peter, and all of a sudden the arguments stop. They then give Paul and Barnabas, thankfully, they get an opportunity to actually speak, and they share what all God was up to in the Gentiles, the miracles that were happening and taking place. And then James as the leader of the church and begins to speak. The same uh, James, who was the writer of the letter we just looked at. This isn't uh, James the apostle, the brother of John. Uh, this James is James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, son of Mary, son of Joseph. And I find that interesting that James has now emerged as the leader of the church, not because of his lineage. That would actually make sense, right? He's the half-brother of Jesus. Of course he should be the leader. But the issue with James is he didn't actually believe in his brother when his brother was alive. He thought his brother was crazy. Right? They approached Jesus and said, look, you've got to come away. Stop talking about how you're the Messiah. You've got to shut this thing down. You're causing shame for us and the family. To which Jesus responded, who is my mother and who are my brothers but these who believe in me? His own family rejected him. But what happens for James is he is visited by the resurrected Jesus. 
And isn't it amazing how hearts change when we are visited, when we come into contact with the resurrected Jesus? This man who did not even believe in his own brother had his heart transformed. So much so that church history tells us he earned the nickname Old Camel Knees. Old Camel Knees because he spent so much time in prayer, knees literally became calloused. This is that same guy, only he's not the same guy. He's transformed by Jesus. And what James says in verse 13 is that, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. It's fascinating. He doesn't call him Peter. As he's speaking to these Jews that are all arguing amongst themselves about their Old Testament Jewish text, he says, Simon has spoken to us. He uses his Jewish name. Simon, one of our own. Remember, he's one of our brothers. He's speaking to us about what God is doing amongst the Gentiles. And in verse 15, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all of these things. And so what James does is he goes back to the Old Testament, back to their own prophets. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 are in the text. And I think it's important that he does that. Because as a Bible teacher, it is important for us to consistently go back to the text. Just like what I talked about in the introduction, it's really easy for me to get way off track. And I have a ton of respect, by the way, for people who can get up and do topical messages over and over again. It's it's too complicated for me. I'm not smart enough. God doesn't give me that many topics to speak about. And, And truly, in a lot of ways, it's far more difficult probably than going verse by verse. But the other danger in it is I begin to speak about all the things that are on my heart and my mind, the things that I think I'm supposed to talk about. And oh, by the way, I avoid difficult topics that I don't want to talk about. But going through the text over and over again, verse by verse, line upon line, it keeps us on the straight and narrow. It's not to say that other churches do it wrong. It's just why we do what we do and the way in which we do it. And over and over again, I have these tabs in my Bible to take you back to the text so you know precisely where it came from. That's what James is doing. That Yes, God's working in these Gentiles, But here's where it shows up in Scripture. Peter's shared with you, now I'm going to show you, that the Gentiles were to receive salvation, clearly laid out here in Amos chapter 9. And as he goes to the text at hand, clearly it's not just James exercising his opinion, but I think it's fascinating that as he writes, he speaks about the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, I will rebuild its ruins. What was the title for Jesus? The son of David, right? A messianic title that he received. And what we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, is that he, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is the same word as the word tabernacled. Here's Jesus tabernacling among us. And what do we do? We have him crucified. 
we allow the tabernacle to be destroyed. But as the tabernacle is destroyed, what God does is actually rebuilds its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord by my name. Speaking to all the Gentiles, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. He's speaking specifically of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That through his resurrection, the Gentiles were actually able to come to know the Lord because he tabernacled among us. Verse 18. Known to God from eternity are all his works. What James reminds us of is the omniscience of God. God knew all of these things. Even 700 years before in the book of Amos, before this very time, 2,700 years before we're sitting here right now, God knew all this was going to take place. He knows everything and he continues. And do you understand that there are some things that God cannot do? Now I say that and instantly people get upset. What do you mean? Nothing is impossible with God. That is true except a few things. First of all, God cannot lie. He cannot lie. Secondly, he can never go back on his word. His word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And thirdly, he is never surprised. There is nothing that happens. You understand, this is important for us to to grasp a hold of, that you're not going to end up in heaven and God's going to go, Whoo! Baby, that was a close one. I was looking at things, wondering if you were going to pull it out or not. I mean, man, there were some of those decisions you made. I'm like, he ain't going to make it. No, and here you are. You made it. God's never going to do that because he knew from the very foundation of the earth precisely where you and I would be. The only decision we have to make is, am I going to be on team Jesus or not? That's ultimately what's lying in our court. We're going to choose. He knows everything, and you can take great courage in that. Because as we're going through things, and there are those of you here right now, you're going through a situation. You're in a spot. And you wonder, Lord, do you even care? Do you even know, do you even understand the place I'm in right now? And what he says over and over again is, I know, I care, I see you. I got it worked out. If you're just willing to have faith, if you're just willing to believe in me, Now, continuing, verse 19. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those who among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled by things strangled, and from blood. And so the direction James says they should go is he gives them four directives one of which is moral, Uh, three are sensitivities to those of the Jewish uh, custom and belief and religion. So he gives them, first of all, uh, avoid sexual immorality, uh, immorality, fornication. These are often acts and things that were done in pagan worship. They would bring in uh, these sexual acts and it would be like a sort of order taking place. And what he's saying is separate yourself away from that. The very fact that you're going to hold yourself in purity and abstain, refrain from fornication is going to set you apart. 
God has been clear on this. This is a moral issue. Paul says that the only sin that we commit that actually condemns our own body are sexual sins. Stay from those things. Flee away from them. And so he, he mentions that. And the next three are all related to idolatry. Stay away from things that are polluted by idols. Specifically, what he was referring to there are uh, meat that was sacrificed to these pagan gods. And what would happen is that they would, in this culture, sacrifice these meat to uh, meats or, or things to pagan gods and goddesses, all these Greek gods and all the different uh, gods that went along with them. They would sacrifice the meat, and after the meat was laid there on the altar, they would take it down, and they would then sell it out in the marketplace for a discount. And so what oftentimes happened for these Gentiles, they didn't believe in the gods or goddesses from their former pagan days, so it was no big deal to them. They were just thinking, I'm going to buy meat at the market at a discount. This was like going to Aldi's 2,000 years ago. Like, look, why would I not buy Aldi meat? It's two bucks cheaper a pound. And so they would buy this meat and then use it. They were trying to be good stewards of the funds that they had. But it was a sensitive subject to the Jews. They struggled with that. Why? Because idolatry for the Jews is a very, very sensitive topic. You might recall through your Old Testament, what did they struggle with throughout much of it? Idolatry. Why did God have them carried off into Babylon? Idolatry. Seventy years they spent away from their homeland because of idolatry. And the one thing, they had lots of struggles in the day of Jesus, but the one thing they did not struggle with ever again when he allowed them to come back into the land, idolatry. It was a big deal in their culture. And so to eat meat sacrificed to these idols was an impasse for them. This is why Paul would speak to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to give you a couple passages. Verse 27, Paul says, If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for consciousness' sakes. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, for their their conscience' sake, for the earth and the Lord is the Lord's and its fullness." And so he's speaking about their conscience. Whenever they go to an unbeliever's house, whatever they serve to you, by all means, don't ask where it came from. Have a clear conscience, knowing the earth and the fullness thereof. It's all the Lord's, but don't ask if it was offered to a pagan god or if you got it at Aldi's. Just eat the meatloaf. Whenever they serve it, just enjoy it. Don't ask where it came from. But if they tell you, you're going to have to abstain from it because it was offered to a pagan god. You don't want that them to think that that's okay to offer sacrifices to these gods. Now then, down to verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved." And so what Paul is sharing there is don't use your liberty as a license to stumble someone else. That oftentimes we have a liberty to partake in many things that aren't clearly spelled out in Scripture. And so as we have an opportunity to partake in those things and we have liberty to partake into meat sacrificed to idols and thinking about that in our current day context when we think about 
smoking that thing or drinking that thing or watching that thing, that those things are not clearly spelled out in the text that we are not to do. We have liberty in Jesus Christ to partake in those. And I know just by mentioning it, already people are uncomfortable. It's okay, me too. We'll all be uncomfortable together as we go through the text. But as we think about things that make us uncomfortable, you have to ask, am I being a stepping stone or a stumbling stone for others? Am I doing these things for the glory of God? And oftentimes, I can tell you the answer is most likely not. And so quickly, if we're not careful, we can be a stumbling stone for those around us, for those in our own household, for our own children, because we're not careful about the things we let in. I might be more than mature enough to handle that. In my walk with Christ, the liberty I have, I can certainly do that. But what if others cannot? And I can tell you without exception that, that years ago when I didn't truly know the Lord, but I would attend church, I was a, I was a pew sitter. And as I was a pew sitter, uh, I would have told you that there is no reason that I shouldn't be able to go out and drink. And the reality is there's nothing in Scripture that says that I should not. But at the same time, had I gone out and seen my pastor at a table with a beer, it would have destroyed me. I would have lied and said, it's no big deal, I don't care. But inside, it would have absolutely decimated me because I wasn't mature enough. And so for me, that's the spot I land. Having uh, recovered from what was a functional alcoholic, the Lord's delivered me from that. Ain't no big deal to me. I don't mind. I don't mind if you do, if you don't. It does not affect me in the least bit. And I believe in this spot, I could probably have one, and it wouldn't be any issue for me whatsoever. The problem is, who am I stumbling in the process? Am I mature enough to not? Or am I mature enough to resist? And so that's so often what we have to think about when we consider allowing anything inside our home. All right, now that we're all uncomfortable, let's go to verse 21. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And so what he's saying is, in every one of your cities, Moses is taught in the synagogues. In other words, there are lots of Jews in all the towns that we're now planting churches in, and they're going to be stumbled by these things if you're not mindful of them. These Jews are not believers yet, and Moses, his law is being read there. And so be mindful of those people so that we might receive them as our own, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't it interesting, too, when you think about the law of Moses being taught, and yet you know what Moses could never do? He couldn't bring the children of Israel into the promised land. The law could only get them to the edge of the Jordan. What who brought them over into the promised land was Joshua. Joshua is the one that brought them into the promised land. His name in Hebrew is Yeshua, and translated into Greek is Jesus. Jesus is the one that can bring us into the promised land through liberty, not through legalities. Now, verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas leading men among the brethren. And so they 
have these men that they send back to the church with these commands, and as they do, it pleases the apostles. They're excited about this, and notice with me that where they were divided, they were arguing vehemently, because that's what legalism always does. It creates division and strife and frustration, but what does the Holy Spirit do? He creates unity. He always binds people together, creating unity. In verse 23, and they wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, and to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such command. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of Jesus Christ, that we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same thing by the word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And so the, they sent trustworthy men, men that could be trusted to bring the message back, not just Paul and Barnabas by themselves. While they were great men of the faith, they sent others from Jerusalem so that they could speak to the message at hand. And in verse 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that you abstain from the things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you do well. And so they were pleased in the Holy Spirit to come forward and bring these things. Holy Spirit unity led to unanimity. That's a hard word to say. It led to a unanimous decision. They were able to come to a unanimous decision through the unity of the Holy Spirit. And so we have to ask that when division arrives... What spirit are we actually following after? That's so often the case, especially in business meetings. We get together, we begin to talk about business. What immediately happens is division, anger, frustration. And having seen that in my past as a kid growing up, I had to wonder, is Jesus even here? <laughs> I mean, are we even concerned about the things of Christ as we're arguing about whether or not to get a new van? Like, it doesn't seem like Jesus is even worried about this or not. And so quickly, I can point to those times and go, this just brought about division. There's no unity. Easy for me to point a finger until I come back to old number one. And I, then I wonder, how many times in my personal life do I have arguments with a spouse or a relative or a coworker? How many times am I actually seeking Jesus in that? How many times have I actually sought this Jesus? Am I glorifying the Lord? Am I actually seeking him in the middle of this? And more often than not, the one I'm seeking is old number one right here. I'm seeking my own self-interest, self-preservation, and selfishness. And there's no wonder that division is created. And so it's a challenge to me. Now then in verse 30, And so when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. 
When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. And now Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they had stayed there a long time, they sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. And Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And so notice as these men from Jerusalem came and they shared this word that had been given, they didn't just eat and run. They didn't just say, here's what James had to say and we all agree, we're taken off. Instead, they stuck around. They did life together. They spent time together. No doubt they prayed together. They grew in relationship. And I've shared this with you before repeating. When you spend time with people, it's hard to stay angry at them. Also, when you pray with people, it is impossible. I challenge you to pray with someone consistently and be mad and stay mad at them, which is why I'm always wanting my wife to pray with me. <laughs> You're not going to be able to stay mad. But it's true. You cannot enter into a spiritual fellowship with someone that you hold a grudge against. There will be a blockade. It will be stopped. And so this is why it is so vital for us to continue as a church to pray together. The more often we can get together and pray, whether it's intercessory prayer that happens at 9.15 every Sunday, or whether it's a special time to just come together and pray, is that you will be unified as we pray together. And so they grew in relationship with one another. They began to love one another. No doubt there were little differences, idiosyncrasies. There's this thing here that I don't like. You know, Peter never cleans up after himself in the bathroom, left his underwear, this toothbrush. No doubt these things happened, but because they grew to love one another, they actually looked past those things. What Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8 is this, above all things, have fervent love for one another for love, multitude of sins. There are lots of things that we are not going to agree about, but if we love each other, it will cover a multitude of sins. It will cover a multitude of things that we do not see eye to eye on, but it can only happen as we grow together in love. And so as they share this message, and this is important to note, they came and shared the message in love that often when we have a message that is difficult to share, it is just as important that we approach it in love as it is even the message itself. That a message can be completely lost no matter how true it is if it's not shared in love. I think it was John MacArthur, and I think John MacArthur stole it from somebody else, but he said this, that love without truth is hypocrisy, but truth without love is brutality. That when we share truth with people and there is no love, it is brutality. It feels like a beating. Like just, he, I'm just getting, it doesn't matter how right you are when it's shared from a place of just straight truth. And what's funny is every time you get someone that says, I'm just brutally honest. I just like to share the truth. I'm brutally honest. You know what they hate? Brutal honesty. They cannot stand brutally honest people because it, they don't like it. It's, it hurts, Right? But when it's shared in love, how much difference? But when it's love shared without any truth, and this is the path the church has chosen 
over the last several decades. We don't want to be brutal anymore, so now we just want to be love, love, love. The issue with that is it's hypocrisy. There is no truth that resides there. We are telling people everything is okay when it is not okay, afraid to speak into anyone else's life that we might offend or hurt them in some way, knowing that if we hurt them, they may just leave and never come back, when the reality is by not sharing, by not speaking into their life, you're not loving them at all. It takes more love for us to speak into someone's life, to have that uncomfortable conversation. It, that is what actual care looks like. And when you look through the life of Christ, he was consistently doing that. He was consistently sharing hard truths with people in love, hoping that they might be saved. And so I want to encourage you in that, to communicate with truth in love consistently with people. And so, Father God, we thank you, and we praise you for your word. We thank you that we can continually be challenged as we study through the acts of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for spiritual and scriptural truths that often speak to us, and maybe they burn just a little bit. Maybe they hurt a little bit, but we thank you, Lord, for the ability to to walk through this in love together. Lord, thank you for what you're up to in this body. Thank you for the positions you put us in where we can interact with people in the workplace, in our families, with our neighbors. Lord, please give us boldness to be able to communicate truth to people because they need to know the truth. But Lord, help us to be able to do it with love so that they're not beaten and brutalized. But instead, Lord, they can come to the saving knowledge of Christ Jesus. Help us as we exercise our liberties that we have in you. And thank you so much for our freedom. Help us not to stumble others in the process. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Please stand.
Christ be magnified in me. Every creature finds its inmost melody. Every human heart its native cry. Then in one in Sing Christ, be magnified. Oh, Christ, be magnified. Let his praise arise. Christ, be magnified in me. Oh, Christ, be magnified. The altar of my life, Christ be magnified in me. I won't bow to idols, I'll stand strong and worship you. And if it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. I won't be formed by feelings. I hold fast to what is true. If the cross brings transformation, I'll be crucified with you. Cause death is just the doorway to resurrection life. If I join you in your suffering, I'll join when you rise. When you return in glory, all the angels and the saints my heart will still be singing my song will be the same oh christ be magnified let his praise arise christ be magnified in me oh christ be magnified from the altar of my life, Christ be magnified in me. And all of God's people said,